Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 34 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. This week we're jumping into 1 Corinthians. So we're going to do the first seven chapters of this book. You should know though that it's not the first blush Paul's had with the Corinthians. In fact, he spent 18 months with the Corinthian saints earlier already. So he set up the church, he established things, and now he's gone on to other places in this area and he's writing epistles back and forth. So he seems almost like a visiting general authority. Like he will, in his epistles, address some of their specific questions that are catered to their area and give guidance. We just don't have the questions. We don't have the other side of the conversation. We just have Paul's answers. So thanks to the Joseph translation, we can get a fuller, bigger understanding. For me, the big theme of this week's study was, I can just feel the ache in Paul's chest a little bit because he set them up for success. You know, he spent 18 months with them, even though they live in this very sin-rich world. Corinth is a pretty awful town. Like, it's a port city. It's got a lot of reputation. It's It's a rough place to be. But Paul has set them up, and now over the course of a couple years of being away, he's found out that things are not going to plan. Um, I just, you know, the visual that helped me this week, I was thinking of, if you've ever bought a bunch of groceries for a big event, like let's say Thanksgiving is coming or somebody's birthday and you bought all the things that you're going to need and you stocked your fridge so that you're ready to go. And then it comes to Thanksgiving day and you pull out all those things so that you can start to prepare. And you found out that your kids have like dug into the whipped cream. You found out that the strawberries you planned to put on top of the pie are actually all gone. Or you find out that somebody took some of the ham and they used it for a sandwich rather than letting you make something of it. I just feel like that's what happens with Paul. He's kind of saying to them like, oh, I I wanted to give you so much more. It's really similar to what I see or what I pictured in the face of Moses. He was on Sinai for 40 days. He received so much light and so much knowledge and the keys to the Melchizedek priesthood so that he could take it down to his people. And by the time he gets there, they have taken what they could find of their faith and they created a golden calf. Even people like leadership, Aaron is in on it. I, I just think Moses must have been so crestfallen. I just think there's a, you just feel deflated in that moment. But like all of us who, if you got into that spot on Thanksgiving day and you have some scraps to work with, you'll put something together, right? You'll find a way to do the best you can to feed your family. That's sort of what Paul does here. He still makes a feast for them to enjoy. He teaches them the fundamentals of the gospel. He reinforces things he's already taught them and he gets them back into alignment. But I think a part of him is always sad that he couldn't make the spiritual feasts that he hoped to make, that Christ planned to make with these saints because they simply aren't spiritually ready for it. So he has some words of counsel. Thankfully, his words of counsel can apply to us too. There are some of it that's pretty specific to the situation that Paul is in, but a lot of it has big, broad application for our day. So I think you're actually going to love it. So I want you to grab your scriptures, grab your notes. There's plenty to study in these seven chapters. So let's get started. Paul's going to start in a pretty similar place to where he began his epistle to the Romans. This idea of saying like, let me remind you who I am and who called me to be here, that I'm here on the will of God, and that my intent is to help those of you who have been called to be saints. Remember, he can see potential in them as a seer. He knows what they're capable of, and he wants to take them to that next level. There's just some things getting in their way. He can't plant these rich seeds of goodness until they get rid of what's crowding out the soil. And it seems to me that the biggest noxious weed that Paul is fighting is apostasy. 
it's not so much sin. I actually think sin is what happens when apostasy has run rampant. Sin is sort of, to me, if like, if the weed is apostasy itself, sin are like those spores that the weeds put out and create more. You know, it, they when they veer off the covenant path or when they start to believe their own version of the gospel and start distorting it to their own liking, sin is a natural side effect. So he's trying to get to the root. He's trying to pull out that weed at the source. So he says something kind of interesting. He says, grace be unto you. This is in verse three. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole reason he wants to weed this flower bed is so that they can feel the goodness and the grace of God again. And then this is what he says in five, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. Part of the issue is that there is pride creeping into the hearts of these saints, and they're starting to think they know better than others, and they're starting to think that they deserve to be elevated above other saints. And you're going to hear him deal with all these issues in the verses, but you can see him trying to remind them right out of the gate your blessings come from God. You're at the beginning of that pride cycle where you've been blessed. And now instead of thanking God and showing humility and gratitude, you're saying like, didn't we do a great job? You know, he's, he's trying to focus them back on like, I know life is a little bit better because you've made covenants with God and he's blessed you. Don't lose sight of the fact that it's the covenants that created those blessings. God granted them as a gift to you. They, they were not things you earned or are entitled to. And then he talks about, what comes next? I love the way he describes it. If you look in nine, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. First, I love that he calls it a fellowship. It reminds me of the fellowship of the rings. My dad loves Lord of the Rings. And so I always picture him when I hear that phrase. But what I like about that implication is it seems like this fellowship is not just a brotherhood. It is something where we come together so that we can accomplish something. We have a great work to do. That's what I feel like when I think about the fellowship of the ring or the fellowship of Christ the Lord. This is a fellowship that's intended to, to do something. I also really like what you see at the beginning of nine, where he says, God is faithful. He called you and he is faithful. What to me that means is if there's a distance between me and God, if I'm starting to feel like he's not blessing me the way he used to, or things are a little rockier, it's never God that moved. God is faithful. He will stay exactly where he says he is. He will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. If there's distance between me and God, it's never God that moved. God is faithful. Something's happened with me. And that's what Paul's trying to say to the saints. Like, you have shifted. What you're feeling, the tension you're feeling in your life is because you veered off the truth that he gave you. We've got to get things back in alignment. So he talks about where their issues are. First off, there's some divisions that are happening. So similar to what we've heard from our prophet and the apostles lately, contention seems to just tear apart the body of Christ, you know, the, this little gathering of saints. Contention just creeps its way in. What's interesting is their contention is not over things outside the church. It's about something within. So they're contending with each other based on who baptized whom. Some are saying like, well, I was baptized by Paul. And others say, well, I was baptized by Peter and I was baptized by Apollos. And it's creating these little clicks inside the membership and it's breaking the unity apart. And you simply cannot have a kingdom of God without that unity. So he's saying like, are you kidding? Like <laughs> to me, I just, you hear his heart say like, you missed it. I, it's in 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Like he's like, take me out of this picture. Yes, I was here for a part of it. I baptized a few of you. 
this is not my church and you do not worship me or Peter or Apollos. We worship Jesus Christ. Get back to the center of what brought you to this faith. It is a, a direct understanding about Jesus Christ. And then he talks about his work. So in 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it is the power of God. Paul's going to use this message a few times this week, and I loved it. I feel like what he's saying is like, I don't need flowery speech. In fact, the gospel message itself is very simple to the point that children can understand it. Because when you have something that pure and that simple, the divine light of Christ is huge. You know, like it is, he's saying, I, I am deliberately trying to teach the gospel as simply and purely as I can so that no light is focused in on me and all of it is focused on this incredible gift of the redemption of the Savior, which is focused in on the resurrection. So he talks about how this resurrection is actually a stumbling block for both groups. It's a stumbling block for the Jews as it has been since the time of Jesus, this idea of him not being the conquering Messiah, a Messiah that actually could get killed by the Romans. Like it's a stumbling block for them. If you look in 23, it says the Greeks see it as foolishness. You know, to the Greeks, crucifixion is something that happens to murderers, people who are guilty of sins. So it's a stumbling block for them too. I'm supposed to worship a God that could be killed and then be brought back again. Like to them, it's foolishness. What I love is everything about this gospel requires faith. To begin this process, you need faith, which is why it will never make perfect rational sense to only my mind. I have to be willing to take things in, in my heart and my mind. There's a great talk in the notes. Oh, I can't think of the, it's called Be a Seeker, Harper, Stephen Harper. So it's a BYU devotional and it's one of my favorites. I, I think he is someone who ignites in me a passion to be a seeker because he talks about this, that we have to use our mind and our heart to understand the truth. I don't think that means God will always give you understandings in your mind and your heart at the same time. In fact, my experience is often it's one or the other in big doses, and then slowly the other one catches up. But I have to be willing to rest on faith for a season until my mind and my heart feel settled about something. I have to make some leaps of faith. And that's what he's trying to teach them about this gospel. But it's going to be a stumbling block for some. If they're looking at this just with physical eyes, it's not going to make sense but you are saints. You've made covenants. You've received the gift of the Holy Ghost. You have a different kind of sight. Don't forget what, what he asked us to look towards. When you flip the page, you see a little more guidance from Paul in that same vein. He talks about how many are called and few are chosen. So he's already told us where power and real wisdom comes from. And then in 26, it says, for ye see your calling, calling brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are chosen. If you look in the JST, you can see some edits there, but He's basically saying like, there's a reason God doesn't call the mighty to this work <laughs> because he wants to demonstrate the power of God. I think it's what we see in the Old Testament over and over again. You know, it's that David and Goliath moment. The whole reason the David and Goliath story is so motivating to us or Moses and this giant Red Sea and this huge Pharaoh's army. The reason that inspires such hope in us is because they are small and by being small, it evidences the greatness of God. So he's going to deliberately work with people who choose to be small. I don't think it means they're people who are untalented or uneducated. I think it means people who are humble, who are in a position of meekness. What I really like about it with Paul is Paul is actually brilliant, right? He speaks many languages. He's been incredibly well-educated. He knows his Old Testament like the back of his hand. Like He 
has lived as a Pharisee. He knows the law, but he comes and he teaches in simplicity and clarity on purpose so that people can not focus in on how eloquent and great a teacher Paul is, but how big God is. That's what he's trying to help them understand. Your egos and your pride are crowding out the Savior's ability to shine bright for others to see. We need to step back and let others see. So in 28, he says, And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. He's going to choose the people who are, who will allow the light of Christ to shine vividly and brightly. People who are not looking for the spotlight. I think it's powerful to me because that's exactly the same message that we heard from the Savior himself. He is despised and rejected of men. He, he, he warns that you're in good company if you feel this way. Like that's, that's his leaders. That's who he hopes to work with in this, in this mortal life. Those are the ones who are called and chosen because they choose to live their life in a way that is small so that God's light can be big. Paul's going to use himself as a living example of this idea of teaching the doctrine simply so that the spirit can do its mighty work. He gives himself an example in one. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not going to wow them with his lots of language skills. He's not going to dazzle them with his knowledge of the scriptures. He's simply going to teach about Jesus Christ, about who he is, what his mission was, that he indeed is risen and a living Christ. That's all Paul's going to focus on. It's not because that's all Paul knows. It's simply because that's what they're ready for at this stage. And he wants their hearts converted to the right thing. So if you look in verse four, it says, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's how we're supposed to build faith in others. We're not supposed to put ourselves in the middle. It's hard. It's tempting at times. But I think he's trying to guide us to something that lasts. It reminds me of, I've got um, one of the YSAs in my class who I just love. She started coming maybe six weeks ago or so, and she came with the missionary. She's she's looking into this idea of the faith. She has a, a really dear friend who's a member who's kind of brought her along with him. And so now she's curious. What I love about how the missionaries have handled this is as they teach her, they plant her in these other places. They deliberately brought her to a class full of people her age, you know, this institute class, so that even when those missionaries are gone, or if they get transferred or something happens to them or they go home, she's still planted in my class. Like she can still get goodness and light and truth from other sources. I think it's the same thing when they encourage her to go to church and to like go to Relief Society. They're planting her heart in lots of places so that she is her testimony is not just based on what they say or how they say it, but on something much, much deeper. She can recognize the the resonant chord in all those places and be like, okay, I feel the spirit in all these places. There's goodness here. So he wants he wants their testimony based on something more solid. I do think it's interesting that where he goes next is talking about the mysteries. This is where I get that feeling of that Moses feel. Because I think Paul, like Joseph Smith, knows so much. You know, he's done the work and he's shown the faith and he has learned things that he wishes he could teach them. He just can't yet. They're not ready for it yet. So if you look in seven, it says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. There are things and even ordinances, I think that they 
he wishes he could offer them, but they're not ready quite yet. And then in nine, it says, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We often tend to stop right at that verse. And it's a beautiful verse all on its own. But I really love when you package nine and 10 together, because in 10, it says, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Nine says there are mysteries out there that we can't even wrap our heads around. That's how beautiful and luminous and glorious they are. And you can't see them with natural eyes. You're going to have to look with a whole different set of lenses. The visual that helps me, there's a great talk from Detar Christofferson where he compared this situation to Helen Keller. And he talked about how she's in her environment all the time and experiencing her environment, but doesn't really understand it until her internal eyes are open. I don't know. I can't remember his exact words. It's in the notes, but he talked about that transformation that must've happened for her, that she becomes this incredible articulate woman. But in that very beginning stages, she, she didn't know how to see, she didn't know how to understand the world around her. That's kind of how I see the natural man. You guys, like, I think our natural man version is us exploring a world that we can't quite see. You know, there are spiritual gifts and light and mysteries available to us if we will simply open our spiritual eyes and do the spiritual work required to be worthy of that knowledge. That's what I think he's trying to get across. Like there is so much more just because I'm teaching you simply as an apostle of God doesn't mean there isn't more to know. You just need to trust the process, build your faith in these simple things first, and then we can move forward to greater faith. And then what he says in 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God. He's saying these mysteries are not like hidden away or tucked away from the general population or just for the leaders of the church. These things are available to those who do the spiritual work necessary, even great things. Our prophet has actually said the very same things that God is giving away the mysteries of the universe. Like these are big promises, but you have to simply be worthy to have them. You have to go through those steps. I love, there's um, a quote, I think it's Elder McConkie. I wrote it in my notes, but I didn't put the name down. It says, to carnal men, these promises may seem as gibberish of alien tongues, but to those whose souls are afire with the light of heaven, they will be as a bush that burns and is not consumed. It's that, you know, he's, I think that's what's in Paul's heart. He's saying there, there is so much that you can understand and that you can see and you can know but you have to have this fire alight in you. You've got to make space for these seeds of truth to grow so that you can get to this next stage of the gospel. And trust me that it's worth it. And then in 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. That's one of the beauties of the gift of the Spirit. I just think it's this understanding. It's like what we read in Moroni 10, where he says that the Holy Ghost can give you the truth of all things. I read in a book this week from Robert Millet that he was saying, like, it's not that the Holy Ghost will teach you all things. We don't have a long enough life to understand all things in the world around us. What he will do is teach you the truth of all things so that you'll have discernment to know what is true and what can work and what to have hope in. That's the promise of the Holy Ghost. And I think that's what Paul means when he says you can have the mind of Christ, because that's where he goes next in 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you listen to the leaders of the church and those who have done the spiritual work necessary to gain those mysteries and those understandings, there's more to see. 
there's a great devotional. I've mentioned it to you guys before. It's from Elder Lund, just from last year. It's called Flashes of Light. And he talks about this idea as well, that the Lord is hoping that we will rend that veil. He is hoping that we will come closer to him, that we'll do what it takes to, to see him even. And these are incredible spiritual promises that we simply live below our privileges. At least I do. I feel like we are constantly distracted by the things of the world and we miss opportunities to see these flashes of light um, and to take opportunities to, to see God more clearly. And I think what Paul's guidance is, is you're going to have to shut your natural man eyes. You're going to have to explore this new world, almost Helen Keller style, and trust that a teacher will help you know how to go from one to the other. There is a transition that has to happen. And when it does, things will catch on fire and it will be a fire that will burn and not consume. I just think those are incredible promises. In verse three, Paul calls these saints babes in Christ, which I just love. I don't think this is supposed to be pejorative, right? This is not him putting them down. He's saying, you're just beginning. You're at the beginning. Maybe they could have been farther, but he's saying like, right now, your spiritual understanding is a little bit limited, which means I can feed you the things that you can digest spiritually. You know, we had, when Hannah brought Ezra home, when he came here, I can still remember Jack asking me if he could have a chip, you know, like, to me as someone who knows the digestive system of babies and has been through this process many times, it was really obvious why Ezra can't have a chip. But to Jack, who's still learning all this, he's like, maybe, you know, he doesn't know that a baby's digestive system can't break down a chip and that he has no teeth to, to bite it. Like he just hadn't processed all that first. And so I think it's kind of the same idea here. He's not saying like, you won't become something good. In fact, by calling them babes in Christ, I feel like it's the same thing as saying like, you're a joint heir with Christ. It means your trajectory is you will be like him. You're just in this infant stage right now, and you can grow to be just like him if you feast on the right things first. The reason I think that's so important is this tends to trip us up too. Like we tend to get lost in these secondary questions, you know, like in these, I call them heliotrope questions. It's like those questions that are on the periphery. And he says, if you will focus in on the milk, focus in on the doctrines of Christ, what they offer you, focus in on what the redemption really offers, and then you can grow and mature and your spiritual digestive system will be ready for more. You're just not there yet. So that's what he talks about too. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. Whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? He's saying, I would love to give you more. I can't until you take these weeds out of the soil. You've got to pull up all this that's creeping in, the pride in your hearts, the coveting, the apostasy, pull all that out so that there's space for the seeds of truth to grow. And if you'll let those grow and cultivate them, just like it teaches in Alma 32, there will be fruit there. You, you just can't get there automatically. You got to do the spiritual work necessary to grow up and mature in the faith. And then in five and six, he's trying to teach them their role in it. Remember, they were almost worshiping these missionaries who brought them into the faith. And so he tries to clarify. He says in five, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. He's like, the miracle is in the increase. You know, there's no 
there's no comparison. In fact, I on my deck, I bought I always buy these plants that are by this one company that basically guarantees growth no matter how poorly you treat them because they've done such a good job cultivating their seeds and giving them a good beginning. No matter what I do, they seem to live. I think it's the same principle here. In fact, I love it when you think back on Elder Corbridge's talk. I can't remember, is it Stand Forever? Where he talks about ordinary miracles. This is in the notes where he basically says, like, we tend to think of things that are great miracles, like a heart restarting or a body even coming back and being resurrected. But greater than the miracle of resurrection is birth. And greater than the miracle of a heart restarting is that a heart ever beat at all. You know, that's God's portion. We are simply just beginning things again. He wrote this plan. He is this grand architect of a plan that will bring joy and light and happiness to all of his creations. We are just here. You know, Paul is someone who plants the seeds. He begins, he starts missions, he starts people off. Apollos, as a more local leader, comes in and cultivates those seeds and helps them grow. It's God that gives the increase. He gives the light and creates the seed in the first place. The miracle belongs firmly on his shoulders. <laughs> That's what Paul's trying to teach them. And then he talks about who they are in this grand plan of this great builder. So he says in nine, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry or his cultivated field. If you look in the footnotes, ye are God's building. And in 10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Again, I think Paul is concerned about apostasy. I think some of his leaders and maybe some of the members in the faith are starting to come up with their own version of doctrine. And he's saying, there is a cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and his apostles create this steady foundation. Remember when we did that as an object lesson and we built those straight walls? That's what he's trying to help them understand. And he's like, you need to be really careful what you build on this foundation because anything that is out of alignment will fall. That's where he goes next. In 12. Now, if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall, fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The visual that helps me think this is, I don't know if you and your kids have ever watched Lego Masters or like the British Great British Baking Show or any like my kids watched all those competition shows. And no matter what the challenge is, there's always that moment where the people have to bring up their creations to the judges, right? The one I watched with my boys on Lego Masters, they had to take this giant Lego creation that they've made and they put it on a shake table. And so they had to see how long their creation could survive on a shake table and, you know, stay intact. That's kind of what Paul's trying to teach them. He's saying like, if you build in alignment with the apostles who are perfectly aligned with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, your structure cannot fall. But anything you try to add on, if you try to put in a wing or you try to turn your brick counter to what the prophets have taught or the apostles are teaching, it will not stand. There is a fire that will come and it will consume everything that is out of alignment. So build sure. It's really powerful because Paul is somebody, I mean, if anybody, Paul is someone who could have cultivated his own doctrine. You know, he could have come up with his own thing because he's very wise and he's been to lots of parts of the world and he, he could have become somebody who led people astray and instead he stays simple and true and constantly checks to make sure he's in alignment with that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So that's what he warns, that if you don't, there will be loss that happens. And then 16, know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. 
oftentimes we talk about this as a personal thing that you, you, your body is the temple of God, but it also is meant in a bigger way. It's meant you are the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the membership of the church holds on to all this goodness, the priesthood keys, the authority to perform ordinances, all those things belong to this body of Christ. And if we start to add in our own doctrines, we dilute the power and it will weaken it. That's why the church falls into apostasy. In fact, there's this really interesting quote from Brigham Young, where he talks about some of the examples that are in the New Testament of when people stopped listening to the apostles like Paul and Peter, and how the we often talk about that the priesthood left the church. But really what happens is the church left the priesthood. They stopped paying attention. They stopped caring about alignment. And it caused this great downfall and a long spell of darkness. And that's why I think Paul sees coming and he's trying to warn about. So he talks about in 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seem it to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. If you are in a position of humility, you are still wise. You're just wise in the ways of God. The same way I can look at many of our general authorities and the women leaders of the church, and they are incredibly bright, capable, strong people who willingly teach simply and humbly and with pure intent, because their goal is to stay in alignment with that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And he warns, anything else you should be wary of, any other doctrine, any other teaching should cause you to pause and and look closer, because it's based on the doctrines of men and not on the doctrines of God. I love how he wraps up in 22. It says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, meaning Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. I Like I told some of you in the live last week, Violet and I went to Family Search, that big building downtown, and I was showing her how you can put your name in and see the connections to people like Neil Armstrong or Elvis Presley or whoever. And she could see that she was by 12 connections connected to Neil Armstrong, who she just read a book about. And it was so exciting to her that she had this close connection to Neil Armstrong. And then I was thinking about these promises in the scriptures that we are one connection away from deity. There is one link between me and God the Father. And my heavenly parents are right there in that family tree. And that's what Paul is trying to help them understand. Be in line. Be in line with God's leaders. Be in line with that cornerstone. And trust that no matter what shaky situation your foundation is placed on, your structure will stand. It has to stand because it's it's built on the foundation of Christ, and that will always stand. We learn that in the Book of Mormon. So I just love that you see it in the New Testament as well. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God. I like that word choice because I think it teaches everyone there that he's not the owner of these mysteries. Even light and knowledge that he has received, he has to use with accountability. In fact, he's going to say in the verses that it's only God that judges me. Like these, this understanding came from God and he will judge me for it. What I like about that is I think it implies that his job as an authority in this space, he's got this patch of the Lord's vineyard that he has been given authority and stewardship over. He's not the owner of it. He's not that master architect. He's just a laborer. And his job is to do the very best he can and to guard these mysteries. Some people compare the mysteries to ordinances and the priesthood keys. I think there's pieces of that in there. But I think one of the things Paul has to do is to gauge where people are. The same way leaders today have to do that, where he's going to 
evaluate who's ready for milk and who's ready for meat. What's interesting is, I think as you go into leadership callings, you realize that's not like a straight trajectory. <laughs> Some of us advance from the milk stage and start to get an understanding, and then we veer off course, and then we need to get milk again to sort of start the process. I think I saw this a lot with Jason when he was sick, right? Like his dietary restrictions were so severe, especially after a surgery where he'd have to go back down to almost nothing, or he could only consume broth for a little while because they'd done so much work on his digestive system. That, like the, that was all he could consume. And it's not that he wouldn't advance to meat again down the road, but for a season, he needed to go back to the milk. He needed to go back to something small and easy to to, to digest. And that's kind of what Paul's job is as a steward, that he needs to evaluate where people are and judge how to use the understanding and the light that he's been given. And he's accountable to a very high source. You know, he's accountable to God. That's what he talks about in four. For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. I think every time Paul is tempted to speak eloquently or dazzle them with some bit of doctrine that they don't know or understand, he's probably, he reins himself in and says, at some point, I'm going to have to be accountable to God on this. And I want to teach truth. I promised I would teach nothing but Jesus Christ to this people. That's where I'm going to focus. That's what they're ready for. So then he talks about how that will come in time. I love the way it's phrased in five. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. There'll be a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And Paul says, don't judge what you can't understand yet. You know, we're basically in that early Helen Keller stage. And he's saying, don't make judgment calls just yet. You don't even know what these words are yet. You don't even understand the world around you just yet. Your spiritual eyes are still waking up. So don't cast judgments yet and don't assume the worst. Extend some trust that there will be things and understandings that will come to the surface, especially when the Savior comes again. Then he warns about being puffed up at the end of six, especially in a congregation of saints. There's just no room for puffing up. It just means you yourself will feel insecure, right? Because you know it's a shell, it's a front, and the people around you feel insecure because they're intimidated by you. It's a no-win situation, so he warns about being puffed up. I actually really like that word choice. You're going to see it a few times this week because it just implies this temporary state, right, to be puffed up. I always picture like a puffer fish, like my kids used to draw all the time. It, it never is like that permanently. It's just this state that we create in order to intimidate who we think might be our opposition <laughs> or our competition. It's, it can't last. And so he's saying like, set all that down and find things that matter most. In seven, he says, for who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? All the blessings that they have at their fingertips, all the reasons they could be puffed up, whether it's because of their job or the fanciness of their house or how successful their kids are at following the gospel. <laughs> Who knows what they're puffed up about. But the, all of those things came from God. So it's like, really, what do you have to brag about? You need to stop focusing in. And then he talks about the life of an apostle. You can see that in the next several verses. It's just written strangely because it's written with a tone of sarcasm, most scholars think. But he talks about the difficulty of being an apostle, what their life really looks like, that their life is hard and it's full of adversities and they live without a house sometimes and without possessions and it's hard. But I love where it ends. And so if you look in 12, it says, and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, and we bless being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. And then in 15, 
For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. This phrase, this verse really jumped out at me. There are a lot of people who want to give the members guidance, maybe even doctrinal guidance about what's true and what's not. And what Paul is calling himself is a father figure. He's someone who's not just a teacher, not a temporary person who's going to hop into their life for a season and be gone again. He's someone who will stay. Their relationship is long-term because they are part of his stewardship. I like this because I experience this all the time with my kids where I teach them things and then they'll go out to others around them, teachers or coaches or friends and receive some other kind of guidance and come back to me and be like, yeah, I kind of like what this coach said instead. And I'll be like, wait, wait, what? Like I'm in this for the long haul. I know who you are. I know your potential. I will stay with you no matter how successful you are at it. That coach or that teacher as much as they might love you, is not the same as a father. A father will stay, and a father knows what you're capable of. And that's what Paul's calling himself. He's like, I'm not this fleeting voice of wisdom. I am your father figure, because I will lead you to Jesus Christ. And so that's what he asked for in 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Remember, Paul has already told us that he doesn't want the attention. He, In fact, he's disgusted by the fact that they're worshiping him in any way despite, instead of worshiping Christ. It's like, is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? So that's not what he's saying here. I think what he's saying is, follow me. You see me as someone who could be eloquent and could dress nice and probably had wealth. And he set all of that aside and chose to be humble and be a laborer for God. That's what he wants them to follow. It's like, set down all the things that puff you up and begin this labor in Christ. Be a part of this great building that he, this master builder, has designed. Don't put your own ideas in it. Just help us build. And if you'll do that, you'll find joy. So that's what he says in 17. Who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in this church? Some of you are puffed up as though I would not come back to you, but I will come to you shortly in the Lord and will know, not of speech of them which are puffed up, but of power. And then you see what he says in 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? He's basically saying to them, like, you get to choose. I, my work and my accountability is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will do his work and I will teach his doctrine. You get to choose how you will live your life. But based on how you choose is how I'm going to come. Remember, he's writing them an epistle at this point. He hasn't visited the town again yet, but he's saying that's going to come. There are teachers out there who are saying, the apostles are never coming back. Let me tell you what the doctrine was really supposed to be. And they don't have authority. He's saying, I am going to come. And how I come is up to you. Either you can feast on this milk of the gospel and grow your testimony, or you can continue to veer off. And then when I return, it's going to be a lot harder. So we get to pick. Chapter five can be a little bit tricky, but thankfully we have that foundation that we built at the end of four, where we just heard from Paul that true power comes from being in alignment, in alignment with that foundation. And if we continually check our walls to make sure we're building straight up from those foundations, then we can rest assured. What seems to be happening in Corinth is they're, they've got a brick out of place. And Paul's job as a visiting general authority is to say, there's an issue here and we have to make a correction. It's just interesting to me because you wonder what their motives were. So basically there's someone among the membership of the saints. There is someone, there are two people who are living in a, an adulterous situation. So there's fornication happening with a man and his stepmother. 
And what seems to be the bigger issue is that they're not doing anything about it. Uh, there is a sin happening and it's commonly known. So that's what you see in one. It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And then in two, it says, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. I don't know if this is focused on the leadership of the church or the members, but he's basically saying to them, like, there is a, there's a brick out of line. And for whatever reason, you're choosing not to correct it. You're choosing to let it go. What they're not realizing that Paul can see is that means the building process that happens above this brick will crumble. It, it will cause a weakness in that entire structure that just can't happen. And so he's asking them to make some corrections. I just wonder where their hearts were. You know, it's possible that this person, I can picture a lot of excuses based on my own life experience and the things I've heard from others, reasons why we should just put our arm around someone and not talk about their mistakes or not bring them to light. You know, just it's tempting to love men first. And what Jesus Christ himself taught is that we need to love God first. And that when we focus our eyes on God and we keep our covenants with exactness, he will teach us how to love everybody else. And what this group of saints seems to be doing is saying, let's love this person first. And then where the gospel fits in, we'll fit it in. And that does not sit right with Paul, especially knowing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In fact, I love that this is where he goes. So if you look in the verses, he warns about leaven. So in six, he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I don't know what they were glorying in. He didn't say that they were puffed up, but I wonder if their glorying is in like, look how compassionate we are. Look how Christian we are. We're, we're loving people who are so different than us. You know, we are going to let them in no matter what their circumstances are. The same way a bishop wouldn't be able to let anybody into the temple if he just loved them enough. Like it doesn't work that way. That's not how the gospel is established. It wouldn't be in alignment. And that's what he's worrying about. He's like that little bit of leaven changes the entire structure of the loaf. You are a united body of Christ. So for us to be this steady structure that Christ has designed for us, we have to align. Everything has to be in alignment. Jason and I were talking about this yesterday of, during COVID. You know how all of us in different parts of the world had different rules and different like structures that were set up or how, how many rows apart you guys could sit and how, whether you had virtual meetings or not, like it was a constant process of checking your alignment because even if you didn't understand why those policies were in place or why they were specific to your little part of the world, you're, you had a constant choice to say, will I be aligned or not? Will I honor my leaders or not? And I think that's what Paul's warning about. Like, if you choose not to, even in these smaller ways, you're weakening the structure of Christ. And I love where he goes when he ties it back to Christ. He says, purge ye out, this is in seven, purge ye out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even as Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. He calls Christ the Passover lamb. And he basically says his great sacrifice was so that we could have this steady, strong foundation. What we owe him then is our loyalty. That's honestly what Christ himself said. If you love me, keep my commandments. Trust that I can see things you can't see. Trust in the glory of the building that I am trying to help you build because it is worth it. Alignment is worth it because as soon as you choose, you know, like in those COVID policies, if I chose my own way and I started to pull myself out of alignment with the leaders, I then lose that structural integrity and everything I build above it is shaky. And so Paul's just saying like, let's get things back on track. He's not trying to pinpoint or target anyone or hurt anyone's feelings. He's just saying like, 
this won't bring them joy in the long run. You loving them and welcoming this sin into the group won't actually help them in any eternal way. In fact, it'll push them further. So bring them back. Bring them back to the covenant. Bring them back to the promises that they made at baptism. Bring them back into alignment. He asks you to do it with a simple phrase. He says in eight, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with old ways or old ways of loving people, with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's Christ's gospel. There are commandments and there are expectations, but they are sincere and they are truthful and they lead to joy. So when we choose to, when we ask people to align, that's what we're seeking. We're, we're seeking an opportunity for increase of joy. And then he talks in 13, but them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He's like, everybody out in the world, God will take care of them. In your congregation, you need to be careful. You need to get rid of anything that will cause this whole lump to be leavened. We need something more pure. We need something more truthful and sincere. And we can find it by aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. The beginning of chapter six is pretty specific, I think, to this situation where he's advising the saints who are in legal battles to sort things out as members first, if they can, and then turn to civil options. But I think where you get the meat of chapter six is around verse nine. This is when he says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I think because Paul is mostly addressing the leaders of the church, especially those leaders that are allowing sinful behaviors to kind of creep into the congregation and putting their arm around it and not asking anyone to change or to keep the covenants that they've made at baptism. He's saying, what that means is you're forgetting where that road leads. Even if I lovingly put my arm around someone and choose to embrace everything about them, if I'm in a position of leadership and I choose not to correct them, I'm essentially urging them down a path that can't lead to lasting happiness. Easing all those vices, and he lists a whole bunch of them, you know, idol worship and adultery and thievery, all these things, if you allow them to continue, that road can't lead to salvation. So he's like, why? Why are you encouraging people to go down that road? You're not showing them real love unless you show them where the true road of joy and righteousness is. It's only over here. And then he talks about how some people used to be on that road and have changed course. I really like this. This is an 11. He says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. There are already people who have been going down that road of wickedness and have set all that aside. They set aside their old habits, their old tendencies, their physical appetites so that they could choose this right, good road. They use the grace of Jesus Christ as their power in order to continue on the right path and set all their old life aside. And Paul sees that and he commends them for it. I don't think Paul sees them as like, well, you used to be sinners. I think he sees them as someone who has triumphed. Remember, Paul is one of these people who was walking on a path of wickedness where he was attacking the saints of God. He knows what that road is like. And he's saying, I know how hard it is to shift to this other road. There are a lot of you that have been there. Rejoice in that and trust that you too can change. And that as leaders, your job is to show love by showing where the real road of righteousness is and where happiness really is. And it can't be over here. And then he talks about how to use the body. You can see some guidance in the notes about this, but there's a big popular philosophy in the, this era of time and in this area specifically that there, the body is something that will be cast off at the end of this life. It's just this 
pit of wickedness that will be shed, almost like a skin of a snake. And that's not what the church teaches. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that your body and your spirit will be eternally connected, that your soul is a combination of both of those things. And if you are coming to God and you're making covenants with God, then both those things should represent God. You should stand as a witness of Christ, not just with your voice, but with how you carry yourself, what you use your body for, what it looks like, how you, what, how you take care of it. So that's what he gives them some guidance on. So he warns against fornication, against sinning against your own body. And this idea of like leaning into the natural man and where that leads you. I love how he says it in 19 and 20. He says, what, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and which ye are not of your own? And then in 20, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's saying like, if you come to an understanding of who you really are and that you've made these covenants with God, it should be vibrantly visible in your the way you act, the way you speak, the way you present yourself, how you choose to spend your time. It should be very clear who you represent. I think it's interesting sometimes the way we teach that phrase, know ye not that you're bought with price, that kind of concept. Sometimes we say it almost like with a guilt, you know, like you've already been paid for, therefore you owe him. And although I think that actually fits spiritually, I just don't think God wants us to be obedient out of guilt or out of pressure. I think he wants us to choose obedience out of love and gratitude. And so I, as I was pondering this verse and hiking this week, this is the thought that came to mind. I was thinking about my volleyball court. So like I told you guys before, I played volleyball all through high school. My job was I was a setter. So I always took the second hit. So if you're not familiar with volleyball, when the ball comes over, you have three hits between your team to, before you can get the ball back over. The first hit is usually to the people on the back row, and it hurts. You guys, they're the passers. They have red arms with welts on them because hitters and servers will come across, and they have to scoop that ball from any location back up into the air. Their whole job is to make my job comfortable. My fingers as a setter never hurt, you guys, because they were so good at their job that they would pass the ball, get it right up by the net, and my job was to make sure I got under it and set it so that the hitter could hit it across the net to the other side. And I found myself thinking, like, essentially what the Lord is saying here, I think, is I've already paid that price. If you think about on that in that volleyball visual, he's already taken the pain and the difficulty of getting that ball back in the air. The way I show gratitude for that sacrifice is to get under it and set it as best I can to set up this next stage of the play. That's what he's asking us to do. It's not, I, I don't give a best set because I feel guilty for the way the pastor had to sacrifice herself. I give the best set because we're on the same team and I'm, I'm grateful for what they offered. And so I want to do my part the way they did their part. The Savior has done his part and he did it gloriously. My job is to take that next step and to set it up beautifully. So I think there's peace in that promise, not guilt. You guys remember how I told you that before I start a new book of scripture, I always go through all the footnotes and mark every JST I can find and then mark the little letter next to the verse so that I never miss them. Chapter seven is one of those chapters that if you don't have the JST marked, you're going to get a little lost because it's so hard to understand without it. But with it, it's like this rounding out of what is there. 
this is Paul's guidance about marriage. He's going to give some advice on why marriage is worth it, what the blessings that it offers. He's also going to give some advice to those in different social classes. And then last, he's going to give some counsel to answer questions about those serving on missions. As you're called to serve a mission, should you be married or not? How that should play out. And without the JST, it's just a mess. But with it, we have all kinds of good options. So I actually really like what you find at the beginning of seven, because he gives counsel about marriage. To me, I feel like Paul's message is this life, you, you are, you have passions and appetites and you have emotional needs. And God's gift of marriage is a blessing to both of those things. It helps you control passions and avoid temptation. And it absolutely helps you stay solidly planted where he needs you because you have each other to lift each other up. So if you look in the verses, it says in two, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. They should each have each other to take care of those passions that we've been blessed with, right? Those are gifts from God to be used in his way. And so Paul knows that and he acknowledges it. And then he says, marriage is a gift to help help with that. In three, it says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise the wife unto the husband. Marriage is not just about being able to create children. It's about being able to create companionship and closeness and a support network. And life is hard. God knows life is hard. That's why he gave Adam and Eve to each other so that they could be helpmates, that they could go out into this, you know, lone and dreary world together and figure it out. And I just think what you saw in their example is that even though it was hard, they found joy in the process together because it brought them closer. The visual that helps me, and for the life of me, I think I actually learned this the day we were sealed. The sealer talked about, it was either my wedding or someone else's, but he talked about that triangle, you know, that God is at the top and that Jason and I are on these other corners. And that the promise is, as I come closer to God individually, irrespective of what Jason chooses to do, if I'm seeking to come closer to God, I naturally come closer to Jason as well. I find out how to love him better, how to care for his needs, how to communicate better. Every time I put God first, in my life, I find ways to help Jason better and our marriage gets better. The same thing happens on his side as he ascends and comes closer to God. It's almost like we meet at this peak in the middle, ideally, you know, that as we come to God, we come closer to each other. And I think Paul understands that. We don't know for certain if Paul was married. There's lots of theories out there. There's some verses in his other epistles that sure make it seem like he was. Um, And that's customary for Jewish men, especially those who were aspiring to be in the Sanhedrin or were in the Sanhedrin. You had to be married to be in that group. So it's, it's pretty likely. I don't know if he's a widower at this point or if his wife, if they divorced, I don't know their setup. But at this point in time, he's not currently with his wife. And so he, there's some confusion about what he says next. Because basically he directs people, especially if you look in the JST in five, it says, depart ye not from one another, stay together as much as you can. Which is interesting because Paul isn't currently with his wife at the time. It's possible that the saints he was writing to knew exactly what his situation was or where his wife was, but we don't. So it gets a little sticky, especially from what you see in seven and eight, because he talks about that they should be even as he is. And so a lot of people read that and assume that means we're supposed to lead a single celibate lifestyle, but that's preferred over marriage. And when you go into the JST, obviously you can see that that's not the case. Now, this is the first commandment God gave to men, that they should come together, that marriages has been ordained from God from the very beginning. So it doesn't fit with the rest of the canon and therefore you got to take it in context.
but I do love the guidance. He says, as you go a little bit further in, he gives, he guides them not to depart from each other. And then he tells them what they should do in 11. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. His guidance to them is seek reconciliation. There's this great quote, although I should say, you guys, the most I got out of chapter seven was not in the actual verses, but in all the things I studied because of these verses. I started studying all the conference talks in the recent five years about marriage. And then I started studying and listening to the BYU speeches on marriage. And oh, there were so many good ones. I put some in the notes, but I, one of the ones I loved, I can't remember the name of the guy, it's in the notes, but he was quoting Elder Holland. And he talked about how this is hard, like this process of marriage and constantly seeking to reconcile and love people who are different than you, even your own spouse, is hard. In fact, none of us can do it without an endowment of power. And then he uses Moroni 7, 47, when he talks about how we should pray for this love. Do you remember that part of Moroni where he talks about how if you lack charity, pray for that love and God can grant it to you. He can bless you with it. And that that's something that can help in every marriage situation. That as we are struggling and trying to constantly reconcile, we can pray for an endowment of power to love them purely, to love them in a way that is deeper and rooted in something much more lasting. I, I loved it. You guys go in the notes. You can find some of those quotes. Then he talks about people who are, have different faith traditions. So since a lot of these people are new converts, it's very likely that some spouses convert to the church and their other, you know, their spouse has not come around or doesn't believe or whatever. And so they have these mixed faith tradition families and households. And basically Paul's guidance is stay together. I, I just thought this was fascinating. He's like, choose to stay together because you have no idea what God can do for you. So he talks about how the unbelieving husband, this is in verse 14, is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And then in 16, for what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? He's saying, stay together, work it out, stay close. You never know if you get to be the gateway that will help your spouse find salvation. And that's a pretty incredible thing to offer. So I, I love his guidance there. Then he talks a little bit about kind of blooming where you're planted. He talks about people in different social situations and how they need to lean into where they are. So the church is sort of this unifying body, right? The idea is that some of these people, like a third of the people who lived in this town would have been servants of some kind. And as they come into the faith of God, they learn what real freedom tastes like. They learn the purity of that gift. When those who are, those who own servants or hire servants come into the fold of Christ, they learn what it's like to serve, right? To humbly offer and to extend love. And both are learning at the same time. So he's saying, we don't need a big civil upheaval as a body of Christ. Stay where you are and do the best you can to abide with God. That's what you see in 24. After 24 is where it gets a little bit sticky. This is where you really need the JST because he's going to give advice to missionaries. This is a time, in fact, what Paul will call it is a present distress, meaning there is an urgent need for missionary work to happen as the word needs to spread across this area. And because of that, a lot of people are called to preach. What's tricky in that situation is they don't know how they're supposed to handle marriages. Are those who are not yet married supposed to get married first? Are they supposed to, if you're engaged, are you supposed to take care of that first? what's the policy? And basically, especially if you read through the JST, you see that Paul's guidance is essentially, if you're already married, serve God and do the best you can. You'll live singly as you're out on your mission, and then you'll return to your wife. If you haven't yet been married, 
choose to hold off on that until after your marriage because it'll help you focus. I mean, it's really very similar guidance to what we give our missionaries today. <laughs> it's this idea of like, there's a time and a season at this time and this season, God needs you here, but this will come. I don't think there's ever an impression that marriage is something to be cast off forever. It is something that sometimes we put off for a time so we can do the work of God. And you see Paul give guidance on that. It's perfectly acceptable to marry and to take care of your fiance. You'll hear the word virgin here a few times in these verses. That just means a fiance it means somebody he's saying like, if you're engaged and she's getting older and you're running out of time, then get married. And if you're not, take care of each other. Go serve your mission first and then come back. It's really simple guidance when you read it with the lens of a prophet's eye. And without it, it's a bit of a mess, but I think it's worth your time. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week 34. So my goal here, as always, is just to give you some ideas on how you could take all the doctrines we've learned from Paul in his epistle and try to apply them in our everyday life so that they're more meaningful to the kids that we teach at home or in our classrooms. And I think it's more fun to do that with a little bit of creativity, mostly because I think it just catches your kid's eye, makes them curious, and hopefully helps them remember these doctrines a lot longer. So I've got some fun options up my sleeve. So for this week, for those of you who are watching on YouTube or maybe listening on the free podcast, I'm going to give you just a quick sampling of what we do here. And then for those of you in the full course, just keep watching or listening and you'll be able to get the full story on all three object lessons. And then also have access to the notes and the printables and anything else you might need in order to pull these off. Okay. First and foremost, we're going to talk about Paul's guidance about where true wisdom comes from. He basically says to people, don't judge kind of like a book by its cover sort of feel. He's saying like spiritual things take spiritual sight and they react differently than the carnal does. And one of my favorite ways to demonstrate this is with a lava lamp. So for this, you're going to need a few clear bottles. Ideally, you just need one, but if you want to make one for every kid in your class or every kid in your household, just go and find some water bottles or we use those like Clear American. They're from Walmart. They were like 50 cents a piece. Any bottle like that will work. You could even use a jar or a vase. You just want something that's really clear and obviously a little bit tall and skinny. And then you're going to need water with some food coloring and oil. You actually could use vegetable oil, olive oil, whatever you have in your pantry. If you want it to look clear like this one, then you want to pick something like baby oil or mineral oil and fill it up, you know, maybe two thirds full. And I'll show you what to do with that. The second one, I thought we would talk about Paul's warning not to be puffed up. A big problem Paul is facing in Corinth is the people are starting to puff up. They're starting to believe that they are better than other people based on who baptized them or come up with their own versions of the doctrines of Christ. And he warns about why that can be a trap. So to teach our kids about that, we're going to make something that they can in fact puff up. So I'm going to show you how to make an origami balloon so that your kids can kind of see the, the hazards of filling ourselves with something rather than letting Christ fill us. So for this one, you just need a piece of copy paper and the printable and you'll be all set for that one. The last one, since it's food week on the chart, I wanted to make something that was delicious and taught a really good lesson. I like Paul's analogy this week about the yeast. He talked about how if you don't get rid of the leaven, then it will impact the whole loaf. 
one way that I found that to be more applicable to something my kids would understand is mint. So I feel like that flavor of mint is kind of similar, that mint is something that once you get a taste of it, it takes over everything else. That's why we use it as a palate cleanser. You know, that's why most gum is minty flavored. It overpowers everything else. And there's a really fun way for you to demonstrate this with your kids by making these delicious cream cheese mints. These are a family favorite. We've been making them for like 20 plus years in my house. So I'm gonna teach you the principle, show you the recipe, and then also give you a little printable so that you can make a little packet of mints for each of your kids to take home after class or to enjoy in the family home evening lesson and then understand Paul's doctrine about why we need to get rid of things that aren't in alignment with God just a little bit better. Okay, gather those supplies and you'll be good to go. Okay guys, that's it for week 34. You've got exploding volcanoes, balls, mints, all kinds of good things this week. I hope you enjoy it. If you need extra help, you're welcome to come find me on the live. So if you pop on Instagram about 10 a.m. on Monday morning, I'll talk through some of the insights that I didn't fit in here and then also walk through the object lessons in a little bit more detail. So if you didn't get quite enough in the YouTube video, Instagram's a good place to get a little bit more. You can also ask questions about the doctrine or ask questions about how to pull off the object lessons and I'll do my best to answer them on the fly. Um, if you have any questions and you're in the course, feel free to leave the message for me on the discussion boards. That's a great place to chat with me. It's also a good place to leave questions for others. So if you just have a general question or if you learned a way to do these object lessons in a little that's easier or faster or more fun, I hope you'll share it on the discussion board so other people can reap the rewards of your good work. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy week 34, you guys. We've got a whole another week of 1 Corinthians coming up next. So get your bearings this week, understand where Paul's heart is, and then set the stage for what we're going to learn next week. All right, you guys, enjoy this week of study, and I'll see you on Monday.